275. The number of meetings that Veronica Vanderpool has attended since she was appointed to the board of the Metropolitan Transportation Authority. She was recommended by New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio. The mayor gets four seats on the 21-member board. The members typically serve four-year terms, but Ms. Vanderpool announced that she will soon step down. She's our guest on this podcast to talk about the MTA and more. Welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. I'm Maria Doulis from the CBC. Veronica Vanderpool, thanks so much for joining us here today. Thank you both for having me. And congratulations on your your new gig. Uh, Maybe we'll have a chance to ask you about that towards the end of the conversation, but congrats. Thank you. Um, So for folks who are listening who know you're an MTA board member, but maybe they don't know much else, how'd you get there? What's your background? First and foremost, I'm a transit writer and I'm a transit user, but my background is in advocacy. For many years, well over a decade, I used to advocate through Tri-State Transportation Campaign, which is a nonprofit actually very close to the offices here uh, on the west side of Midtown. And while I was there, I worked on all sorts of transportation and transit policy issues. I actually started there in 2007 on congestion pricing. Mm. Uh, That was the Bloomberg iteration at that time. And it was my introduction into the world of public policy, politics, campaigns, coalition building, working with the media, working with all sorts of legislative partners at all levels of government. And that really was the foundation of so much of my advocacy and was very pivotal in putting me into a space where I was uh, a a strong advocate on these issues and then ultimately led to the recommendation of me being Mayor de Blasio's representative to the MTA board, which was certainly surprising. Oh, yeah? Because I'd always been a very vocal advocate, and sometimes that requires criticism uh, and praise of both our city and our state funding partners. From that time period the push for congestion pricing, any other sort of big highlights campaigns that you you helped craft and lead that you, you know, remember fondly or, or less than fondly? Absolutely. The push for city bike, we were largely involved in that. The pedestrianization of our city streets throughout uh, the five boroughs, including the closing of Times Squares to cars. Uh, the promotion of select bus service that was launched in my home borough of the Bronx in 2008 on Fordham Road. Uh, More regionally, we, Tri-State, when I was at Tri-State Transportation Campaign, we led the campaign for improved bus service in the Tappan Zee Bridge corridor. And in fact, New York State had been studying that corridor for well over two decades. And when Governor Cuomo proposed that he would uh, rebuild the old bridge, transit had been dropped out of that plan. So we very assertively engaged in that discussion again and resulted in a new transit system that's currently running called Hudson Link. Uh, In New Jersey, we were behind the increase in the uh, gas tax in the state um, to support transportation infrastructure. In Connecticut, we were behind the state's passage of complete streets. So Many, many key signature victories that have reverberated throughout the tri-state region. We, as an organization, have worked in those three states. So it gave me good purview. Uh, That was very relevant also for the MTA board. 
It's interesting listening to you speak, you know, about t- 10 years ago, 2007, when you were talking about congestion pricing and select bus service. A lot of those pedestrianization, a lot of that was met with skepticism in the city. And now the culture has sort of turned around on these things. And there's a push to do even more and at an accelerated rate. So you must be very proud of those victories. I'm certainly really proud. And I'm even prouder to be part of a strong advocacy contingent. The advocacy landscape particularly in New York City, is unique and is really behind so much of these changes. And and we're a tight-knit community. Do you have um, a philosophy on transit? You know, is there sort of a guiding principle or two that has led your, your work? Equity has been that guiding principle. For me, transportation and more specifically transit speaks so much to uh, equitable access to jobs and housing, to uh, quality of life and, and what that looks like, to the sorts of communities that we live in and, and the types of relationships that we build, um, either through our civic engagement and the time we have for that, or our personal relationships through social engagements. So I think the equity argument and thread has been incredibly uh, important in how I've advocated across the region, again, outside of the the five boroughs of New York City, but talking about why it is important that we have affordable public transportation that's happens the bridge corridor, because it's not just a corridor of people who own cars. And elevating that has been incredibly uh, important to those who feel that has not been highlighted. And it's also been eye-opening for many legislators who frankly may represent car-dependent constituencies but are, are are sympathetic, interested in in this other constituency that they hadn't necessarily paid attention to. So equity certainly is the underpinning of so much of what I've advocated for. So I guess let's jump to then being on the MTA board. Um, well, first, how do you sort of <laughs> – I, I think sometimes even among people who sort of follow closely, there's a little bit of a misunderstanding the board versus the sort of – full-time staff leadership. Um, can you just capture for people sort of what the board does and how it, how it works? The MTA is an incredibly complex <laughs> agency, and it's great uh, when we have an opportunity to, to dive into why that is. So the board is comprised of 23 individuals, 17 of whom actually have voting power. I am one who has voting power. I am a, 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 a recommendation of Mayor de Blasio, and the mayor of New York City has four recommendations to the board, each with one full vote. Now, that's significant because there's other board members, uh, four in particular, who each each of whom have a quarter vote. They're uh, very lovingly referred to as the quarter pounders. <laughs> these, um, are, these are from the far, f- sort of far-flung counties that do have MTA stake, but less so than than other parts of this. Exactly, region. they're the representatives of Duchess, Putnam, Orange, and Rockland, Rockland. County. Uh, so the MTA board is not involved necessarily in the day to day operations of the agency. That is left to the leadership, such as our current CEO Pat Foy and the leadership team. Uh, there are several divisions under the MTA agency umbrella. Many are familiar with New York City Transit and Bus, which is run by Andy Byford. We also have the Long Island Railroad, Metro North, Bridges and Tunnels, Capital Construction. So these are the the subsidiaries under that MTA umbrella, and the board is the board for all of those divisions. So 
our specifically our main role is to make decisions on our operating budgets. In fact, that is the decision we have to make in December. Mm -hmm. We need to vote on the 2020 proposed operating budget. And with that decision comes decisions about um, the number of personnel we have, what initiatives we might be investing in, um, whether there might be service adjustments or service reductions, whether there might be a fare or toll increase, which is not proposed for 2020, but is programmed for 2021 and 2023. Uh, so the board is responsible for making some of those larger decision-making actions. Another one is approving the capital program. So while we rely on staff and personnel to put together those projects that should be in the capital program, it is our job as a board to ask critical questions about those projects, to uh, challenge and elevate some key assumptions. Um, and then as a board, sometimes we set policies such as board members proposing resolutions, as I had done a few years ago, to ban alcohol advertising in the subway system, much like uh, tobacco advertising had been banned several years before. So we set policy uh, in ways such as that, and then we help move forward the capital program, and then our operating budget annually. So the MTA proposed its budget in November. As you said, you'll be voting on it in December. How extensive is the board's review and sort of power to alter that document? We have limited capacity in the sense that it, it isn't as if we have line item veto. So we have to take the budget in its aggregate. And we as a board are relying on our brilliant staff to put together these very difficult assumptions because we know any budget for any organization or agency is really a set of assumptions. So we're relying on our staff to put that together for us. There are things in any budget that raise issues or raise questions among board members. And for example, one key discussion point about the proposed budget has been the inclusion of several hundred million dollars, 249 million to be exact, for the hiring of additional police officers in the system. And that has generated a good deal of discussion. Do we have the opportunity to line item that out of the budget? No. So what happens in the next month into the December board meeting is a discussion and whether or not staff might make a different recommendation or not. That's sort of one of the processes. How is it that we're discussing this up until that pivotal action and decision has to be made? And from your perspective as a board member, who who are the most important people making those decisions? I mean, there's obviously a lot of um, focus on the chair and CEO, Pat Foy, um, he is appointed by the governor. You know, is it your understanding that when every push comes to shove, it's basically the two of them that are making the biggest decisions? Or is it more internal than that, where it's the different uh, division chiefs that really are, are crafting those pieces? It's been a combination of the both, quite frankly. Over the three and a half years that I've been a board member, I've seen a very significant difference in how the governor's role has been involved in the MTA from my time in advocacy in 2007 when we had different governorships and different people in office. We've seen some very explicit suggestions uh, and actions and measures proposed and implemented by the governor, for example. Um, uh, 
that have been a departure from what has been planned. For example, just sticking to the capital program and talking about the implementation of open road tolling. That was something that was a good initiative, but it wasn't included in the capital program, but was a priority of the governor. That's one of a, a dozen such examples. But then we have our staff that is letting us know, of course, what the priorities are. Um, and what needs to be invested in. And we rely on individuals such as Andy Byford, who, as we all know, put together the mm -hmm. fast forward plan, uh, identifying the priorities in that, he, that he noticed based putting, putting it together with staff. So it's a combination of, of the both. The board members at times have raised issues that have been included in some way. Um, but it is mostly driven by the staff. And as of late, there's been a, a considerable amount of input from the governor. And have you been satisfied with the level of information that's been provided to you on some of these key initiatives and the timing of when that information is released? And I'll raise something that CBC has brought up, which is we have this massive capital plan that's been proposed, and yet we've never seen the 20-year needs assessment that typically predates that plan. Right. So in your seat, with your fiduciary duty, how can you approach evaluating the investments outlined in that plan without something as essential as a needs assessment to be able to, to benchmark against? That has been a key criticism of mine for three and a half years and, in fact, has informed some of my no votes. I have not voted no often, though I am often identified lovingly as a critic, but I have reserved no votes for instances where I felt we've not been adequately informed. Um, I have raised that issue around the transformation plan, for example. And one of the reasons why I voted no was not because I'm against transformation. Who's against efficiency and oper you know, um, operating improvements and staff development? No one's against those sorts of things. I was against just having 37 pages of a transformation plan that I knew was many hundred pages more detailed than that. So it is very difficult. Sometimes uh, I feel that I am not adequately prepared nor informed to vote yes on something because I've lacked some details. I have been frustrated with uh, the amount of information that has been presented to us and in what timeline. And I'm not in the minority. Other board colleagues of mine have raised those issues over the years, too. And it certainly puts us at a disservice. Now, for the capital program, I, as many others, and to your point, Maria, did raise the issue that we, we didn't really have enough time to sort of go through the capital program, having lacked this 20-year needs assessment, which has customarily informed the development of the capital program for the next five years. So I often joke that if you want information, the last person you should seek information from is a board member because we're often the last to Oy. know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it can be a joke, but that's also, I mean, that's tr that's troubling, right? I mean, that's... It, it is troubling. And in we're fact... We're talking 50 plus billion dollar capital plan, billions and billions per year in the operating side, um, and obviously the, you know, the transit experience of millions and millions of riders. Indeed. And in fact, it, it impacts us on a monthly basis, too. One one of my biggest surprises upon joining the board many years ago was uh, 
how few days of preparation we were allowed by the time we received the materials for the board meeting. And when I first started on the board, we were often receiving thousands of pages of material about two business days prior to the meetings. Now that's certainly improved. We've got the the MTA and staff have done a much better job at providing that information many more business days in advance. And it's no easy feat and task for the staff to prepare this either. It's not as though um, they're not often waiting for information that is still being put together down to the last minute. So I want to acknowledge that. But it has been very difficult for us to both review these materials and then have informed discussion with our board colleagues or with staff about questions that we may have in the materials. If you're reading something on a Saturday night and you have a question, while staff is responsive um, at that hour, oftentimes, it may be difficult to have a larger discussion with board colleagues at that hour of the day prior to a Monday um, set of, of committee meetings. So that's been a, a real challenge as well. There's been a conversation as um, efforts have been made to turn the MTA around about the city's level, both um, the city's responsibility to fund the MTA um, and what authority, if you will, the city should have over dictating some of the investments if and if it does provide more funding. So as we said, the city has four members on the board. How do you think about um, what the city's responsibility is to finance the MTA and then whether there should be any adjustment made to the composition of the board given the fact that transit is the largest operation, the commuter railroads largely serve to bring people into the central business district, and then bridge and tunnels also are basically connecting you know, uh, transportation assets into Manhattan. What's the city, you know, how should we think about the city's responsibility here and its power on the MTA? I think the city, certainly during Mayor de Blasio's tenure, has exceeded its responsibility in many ways. So prior to the $2.5 billion commitment for our current capital program, 15 to 19, and for those of you not familiar with the capital program, it's the construction blueprint. Uh, prior to that commitment by Mayor de Blasio um, in 2018, actually, Uh, No, 2016. It was the middle of 2016. New York City's contribution had been significantly much lower to the MTA's five-year construction budget. So Mayor de Blasio did at that point commit a historic number, unprecedented on levels. We had just seen very small percentages of that amount during, for example, the Bloomberg administration and prior administrations. And then with the MTA's proposal that the city contribute $3 billion for the next five-year construction plan, 2020 to 2024, the mayor and the city of New York didn't balk at that. In fact, they said, well, we have some conditions before we actually agree. They didn't implicitly give their agreement, but there wasn't a lot of hedging. And that's significant because it shows that the city understands that it is a valuable and critical funding partner. And it shows the city's understanding that 70% of the infrastructure lays within the five boroughs of New York City and that the economy of the city is so inexplicably intertwined with transit. So it it is a demonstration of that value of the system. So I think, and then on the operating side, New York City has also 
contributed significantly through, for example, supporting NTA bus, um, supporting paratransit, which has been an issue that's come up for mm-hmm. the December discussions for the next year's operating budget. Uh, and several other uh, city dedicated taxes that support our system. Right. And, and the thing, the point that we always make at CBC is, you know, the city is not a person with a wallet and a credit card. Um, the city draw, has a budget that draws on resources from taxpayers the same way the tax, um, the fares and the tax revenue that the MTA collects largely come from people who live in the city. So that city support is really the bulk of MTA funding. It's coming from city taxpayers. So we know obviously the the governor appoints the leader of the MTA has the most appointees to the board but the city does have the four spots um, at times filled and at times not uh, currently three out of the four are um, what is you know what could be the city's full impact on the MTA board and the MTA operations you know sort of just building on that last discussion you know, beyond your tenure, there'll be the four seats still, your seat gets filled, let's say the empty seat gets filled, you know, the next year sometime, these both happen. Um, what what What's the potential for the city, you know, that, that the city hasn't reached, but that the city could reach in sort of impacting how the MTA functions? The potential of the city, if we had a, a different governance model, would be to prioritize in actual action and measure some of the priorities of New York City. So, for example, there was a good deal of discussion around the enhanced station initiatives um, some time ago. And we, as the four-city member contingent, raised a significant amount of concern about how that $1 billion in proposed funding was going toward uh, 33 stations that we saw as not truly ident- or addressing some of the priorities of the system, specifically accessibility uh, and elevated access even more specifically. And we were able to raise issues and uh, ask questions and vote against it. That ultimately didn't shift the power dynamic or the decision. But what it did was altered a little bit the committee discussion because a lot of actions do have happen in committee and can be stalled in committee, not move out for, for full vote. So there was that, that situation where we were very close to changing that dynamic. I think what's most troublesome about the governance structure of the MTA is less sort of who is appointed by whom and more how each individual board member sees his or her responsibility and to whom. So one of the reasons why I've been called autonomous and independent is because I have often, as have uh, some of my city contingent board members, disagreed with some of the policies of of Mayor de Blasio. For example? Uh, Very early in my tenure on the board, I uh, penned an opinion piece in the Daily News about why it was important for New York City to support congestion pricing. And at that time, uh, Mayor de Blasio wasn't yet on board. He is, we know now, and he's been very supportive of it. Um, but that was one initiative. Another initiative that my colleague David Jones has been very um, assertive on has been the issue of fair fares and why that is uh, should be a priority of, of New York City. And we know that it is. Again, something that yeah, the mayor moved 
exactly. head on to that, some degree. Mm-hmm. That's right. So I've not seen that from too many other board members uh, representing their their various geographies on the board. And I think what's incredibly important to that dynamic and that independence is appointing individuals for whom that independence is paramount. And there's all of the board members on are individuals I respect. I don't agree with all of them, but I respect them because they put in a lot of work and they're smart individuals. And at the end of the day, we all want the same things. Um, so it, it it strikes me as interesting. I mean, I would never I would never sort of disagree that it's really important that members of a board like this have independent voices and are not too beholden to the to the people that appoint them. But at the same time, it also strikes me that sort of it's been rare that the mayor's appointees have sort of gotten together to really fight against something or fight for something. And that's almost a little bit of the flip side of of the independence aspect, because we know you and David Jones especially are very independent minded people and speak up. Um, But, you know, that's something that has just sort of been apparent over the last bunch of years that, you know, the mayor has made some some strong appointments to the board, but he hasn't taken seemingly that much interest in what's happening at the MTA. I would say that Mayor de Blasio has put a good deal of confidence and trust in his board members. And there is a good amount of discussion with city leadership about priorities and topics and issues that we want to highlight. And he's given us a good amount of latitude to certainly do that with great respect for the expertise and the knowledge that we have on these issue areas. And again, his unprecedented support of the capital program, unlike any previous city administration or mayoral administration, I think is incredibly important to highlight. So capital plan is out. It's $55 billion approximately. What is your assessment of the capital plan? Does it focus on the right things? I would say yes. And that's because most of the capital program is an overlap of the fast forward plan um, nearly identically. And we all, as users of the system, understand the real challenges that we encounter riding our subways and our buses. Uh, I would have loved to see, and I was vocal about this, more investment in our Metro North system. Uh, Long Island Railroad has gotten significant investment, and it's well-deserved. Much of that infrastructure on Long Island is from 1850s, and that island has grown significantly. And I've been a big champion of projects such as Third Track, Second Track, East Side Access, very much needed. At the same time, uh, we're seeing a slippage in identifying some of our state of good repair needs for Metro North. And in fact, Metro North is receiving about a billion dollars less for a comparable size railroad in terms of ridership and and infrastructure than Long Island Railroad. And and that was a concern of mine and and a, a number of others on the board. But I think moving forward, what's important to point out is that we are finally getting to a point where we're right-sizing our capital program with the needs of the system. For as long as I've been in advocacy, so I've, I think this is my third or my third capital, you know, five-year construction cycle at the MTA, having been in this advocacy space. And we had always operated with a very low capital program number. And many of us were very frustrated noting that that doesn't capture the full needs of the system. So at $51.5 billion, significantly more than we've ever seen, 
I think we're moving to a point where we're saying our system has greater capital needs and construction needs, and we're getting serious about addressing them. So I I have a a real concern about this. Right. There's a flip side of that, right? Right, which is, you know, there's not – it's a big plan. It's very ambitious. Um, But there's also a lot left undone from the prior plan. So what you're looking at is $70 billion in commitments total between the two plans and some, like, sprinkles from the prior plans that are yet undone. And, you know, from where I sit, this is sort of too important to mess up, right? So it's great that we have this this big plan, but there isn't a lot of clarity on what is getting done when. And the plan really assumes, in order to execute, that the MTA will rapidly step up what it's able to do in terms of getting these projects out the door and done. Are you concerned about this? I mean, I think, you know, having a big plan and making us all feel better, like, yes, we're finally getting the the investment, we've got the new revenue sources, is nice. But at the end of the day, riders want to know, is the system going to be reliable? Is my station going to be fixed up and when? And how can we assure riders that that will, you know, that that will happen? That That's going to be a real challenge. And one additional reason why is because while we're seeing this historic investment on the capital side, we're seeing unprecedented deficits on the operating side. Mm. And that has been a concern that I and others have certainly raised, as you all have raised too. It is worrisome um, for many of us. How are we going to accomplish this very ambitious program um, with some of the projects that are still underway. We've seen monies still being spent from the 2005-2009 capital program. Um, and in fact, this uh, last capital program, the current one that's proposed, 2020-24, we're still seeing monies shifted around between the two prior capital programs. Um, so there's a massive amount of work. And we need a workforce to do that. We need operating funds to support that, um, given that our operating budget is 62% comprised of labor, um, and we are expecting significant deficits still, um, even with some very favorable projections, for example, on um, real estate taxes um, and money recouped from fare evasion. We are still, and savings from the transformation plan and other savings that the MTA had put in place years prior. Um, where, where I think that will be a challenge to convey to the public that we are able to do this. The one p- very positive thing is that we've seen significant improvements in the system. Mm-hmm. We've seen um, delays reduced significantly. We've seen on-time performance improved. We've seen speeds in our bus network improve and ridership jump, particularly on um, the M14 in Manhattan. We've seen fewer um, signal delays. So, and we're seeing more time saved to the average person's commute. For some people, that's 32 seconds. And for others, that could be six minutes. But at least we have a track record over this period of investment to say, look, we understand your frustrations. We are making progress. We're identifying the progress. The progress is still underway. And I think that track record over the past 18 months in particular is going to be helpful prologue for what we expect to see with this next level of investment. There's a little bit of a, um, what's it called, you know, rebuilding the plane as you're flying it, too, happening, right, with the transformation plan, some new leadership, uh, 
a new COO being announced, uh, a chief transformation officer. I'm not totally sure um, why so many so many different leaders are needed to do you know what's what's needed here, but. The idea is also to streamline some of the operations and take a real close look at how the MTA operates to improve that annual budget and not run those deficits. Do you feel confident at this point that that's going to happen fairly efficiently while this massive capital spend is also being implemented and effectively done in a reasonable time frame? I mean, how concerned should people be that both those things are supposed to happen at once? And it's, as you both just said, such an ambitious capital plan needed, but but so ambitious. I mean, how, how concerned are you, you know, as you sort of vote on your final budgets here? I would say I identify it as a real challenge um, and certainly worrisome. I I think that there's a significant amount of action underway at the MTA that is, it's a huge undertaking. Um, the transformation effort is unprecedented, uh, not just for the MTA, but for any agency and bureaucracy of this size across the country. I really, in the public sector, obviously there are private sector examples, but I can't imagine, I, I'm not familiar with any other public sector example that is of this size. So I think that this is a, a huge undertaking um, that will inform some of the capital program decision-making. For example, we know that there's going to be an entirely new um, line of engineering and construction, for example. And the pros and the cons of that, I think, are going to unveil themselves as we go through this process. We've not really had the most robust discussion about what those look like. Another reason why I voted no, because I wasn't entirely clear on what those might be. Um, so I, I do think that they will inform each other. They will be a challenge to balance together. Um, but at the same time, there's efficiencies to be had by having this overlapping, these overlapping processes. Um, so as we're going through the next five-year construction cycle, the changes that are being identified as part of the transformation process are then being put in in real time. Um, so there's some real benefit, too, of having these overlapping timelines. And... I'm an advocate, and advocates require optimism. If not, we're in the wrong <laughs> the wrong business. So I'm always optimistic that things will will have positive outcomes and that there will be good results generated from this process. I was a, a huge skeptic of the L train decision, but ultimately, it's seemingly working out well for our riders and for the project overall. Um, and I always reserved that optimism. It was more about process for me, less mm -hmm. about the actual technicality. So I think process will be really important here. And these overlapping processes might just end up benefiting um, the savings and the efficiencies of about $1.6 billion that we're expecting to get from just the transformation efforts alone. We have about five more minutes with Veronica Vanderpool. We appreciate the time. Yes, yeah, so you look at me because you know where I'm going. Um, oh. <laughs> uh, you know, you're optimistic. I'm so skeptical by nature, right? Hey, these are so, our roles. As you said, you know, you alluded, you hit the right 
point about the deficits that are projected in the MTA financial plan, and this is with fares, you know, fare increases baked in on a biannual basis, fare and toll increases. Um, and, you know, it, it's contingent sort of on nailing it on the transformation plan, nailing it on the budget reduction plan, which is also very significant, and also a labor settlement that is reasonable. And so the MTA has pegged what's reasonable at essentially 2% increases for the life of the plan. Um, you know, from where I sit, drivers are going to have to pay more with congestion pricing. Riders are going to continue to pay more on the fares. MTA management is reorganizing. Taxpayers have come to the table to say, you know, we're all authorizing these new lines of support, but we haven't seen anything from labor. And the TWU contract is expired. You know, at least from the outside, from what we read in the press, it doesn't seem to be going so well. And yet it's a critical part about making sure that the MTA financial plan remains sound. Um, you have any insights or comments on, on that part of it? Because to, for us at CBC, it's a real worry and a risk to the financial plan. As I noted earlier, and you all know the statistics, 62% of our operating budget is dedicated to labor. So there's no way that we can ever, as an agency, nor as a board, talk about reining in costs in our calendar operating budget without addressing labor. And it's just because labor is such a big part of our, our budget. When I was an executive director of a small nonprofit, Labor was the biggest part of my budget, too. Nearly all of our philanthropic funding came in and went to our, our personnel. And I had to make decisions about, okay, how do I keep my staff happy? How do I continue to cultivate and develop them? How do um, I make sure that they're meeting their quality of life increases? Uh, so it's a very difficult juxtaposition. And... Board members are not involved in these discussions. Many people might know that there's a dedicated labor team um, that's MTA personnel that is responsible for negotiations. Board members' roles are to raise these issues and talk about the concerns and finding the balance. Um, and those conversations certainly have happened. There's a great deal of respect for our, our workforce. And I think the conversation and tenor, unfortunately, has grown very vitriolic. And while there are obviously um, in any agency and organization instances where there can be abuse, I think there's been a mischaracterization. I think what's important is we identify those very few instances of abuse and we tackle them. And that is what's happening without mischaracterizing our entire workforce. And in fact, fortunately, that's not happened. And that's supported this very hostile um, discussion. So I think w we're always in the position where we have to, it, we have to f work with our labor force to find efficiencies based on what's reasonable, making sure that they feel the respect that we have for the work that they do. As a board member, I often see members of our our subway and bus personnel come in showing our, their injuries to us sustained in the system. So we recognize that it's a challenging work environment and that needs to be honored and respected. At the same time, this is an agency that never will operate in the black. We are always operating at a deficit. Um, and there's some real financial constraints here. And we can't do it all. We certainly don't want to lay people off. We don't want to cut service. We don't even want to adjust service in ways that impacts too many people. So how are we stretching um, the efficiencies across every sector of our budget? So 
these are the sorts of issues that we're talking about, we're sensitive about, and we're hopeful. I'm hopeful that resolution is found soon because we certainly need our workforce and we need to find these efficiencies. Correct me if I'm if I've missed it, um, or if it's happened, nobody knows about it. Um, but it doesn't seem like there's a real conversation that's happened around bringing construction costs down, like the the you know, and and that dovetails to another question that I want to get your take on, which is why there's no real plan in place to build out the subway more. Um, those two things obviously go hand in hand. When we've just looked at the Second Avenue subway, um, there's obviously. A plan to continue that, but no other plan to, you know, to, to even try to what would be, you'd think, cheaper extensions in other places. Um, that's really not on the table other than some long delayed studies that maybe will keep going. So those two sides of a, of, of a coin, is there any real conversation on either of those? I mean, I know design build has come up. That's one piece, but. there There has, in fact, the construction, the project delivery at the MTA is the biggest blemish, if not one of the biggest blemishes on the agency as a whole. And there was a board working group um, several, about 18 months ago that convened over the period of a year that looked at how are we improving our procurement process and our project delivery process. Some of those recommendations were, in fact, implemented, and then some of them sort of were paused as discussions of transformation became um, or were underway. And that is one of the biggest areas that the transformation plan has to tackle. And MTA is being very um, responsive to a lot of these concerns. A few board cycles ago, I think it was in October, there was a video showing why elevators cost so much. That is one of the key criticisms of why from the public is the cost of elevator installation. And the MTA put some effort into explaining some of the very unique characteristics. It's it's an attempt to explain the complexities of a system. But it in and of itself, that does not preclude this constant scrutiny of what can be done better. And the transformation plan has to be doing that. It certainly will be doing that. So these conversations have happened. I think they're sort of less in the public frame now because so many people feel, okay, throw it into transformation mm. um, and let's see what happens. And I don't mean to be suggest uh, anyone's being flip about it, but it's such a key component of of reducing costs, that it will be a key priority of this transformation process. I was just struck, you know, that Jano Lieber, you know, recently sort of said he's not really sure why it's so expensive uh, to build. And Well, he, he's not sure why it's more expensive than London and Paris right. in particular, but I think he now he's got a handle on what some of the built-in sort of processes and mechanisms are, particularly in the contracting process that drive up some of these costs and delay. And I think he's laser-focused on, on working on it. And we should and, have him and back. He should, I was yeah, just going to say, he came, he came to talk to us when he was first yeah. starting, so it's definitely time um, for another. But again, it, you know... It, it's starting to bear fruit. It could bear more fruit. It could improve the execution. Will it improve the execution enough that they'll be able to do the seventy billion in the next five mm. or six years? It remains to be seen. So let's wrap up. Uh, I guess I I'm just on your sort of almost on your way out. Are there any I don't know final sort of you'll have other interviews I'm sure before mm -hmm. you before you depart. But but as of now, are there things on like your big wish list for the MTA that you would love to see 
next year, three years from now, whatever, you know, as you sort of look back on your time, are there are there some big things that you hope happen down the road? So I would say two things. Um, first and foremost, I hope that the next um, a recommendation for my spot is a woman. Um, Mayor de Blasio has put forth two individuals, Bob Lynn, who's currently serving, who's wonderful, and Dan Zarilli, who's pending, as we know. Uh, but I think it would be important to have another woman on the board. When I started on the board, women were 19% of the board. We're now 29%. We need a board that is more representative of the writing public and um, and certainly need more women on the board. And I would love, again, to for that person to be uh, independent and not worry about employment considerations by being an employee of the city of New York. I think that can um, muddy the the advocacy waters in some cases. More broadly for the MTA, I would love for the MTA board to have a stronger governance model. I would love at some point for the MTA board to appoint its own chair mm-hmm. um, and, and vote and discuss its own chair, hire its CEO, and perhaps even be involved or engaged in senior, the most senior management decisions, such as the presidents of the agencies or um, whatever operating titles that ends up having uh, as uh, after the, the transformation outcome. That's incredibly important. We are unique as a transit system in this country uh, that does not do that. So many of our other counterparts in large cities do have that function and oversight as a board. And um, I would love to see that uh, a different governance model moving forward. And in terms of MTA priorities, what do you think is the most important thing that needs to be accomplished in the next five years? I really do think that accessibility in our system and beyond elevators and escalators, of course, very, very key, but all the other um, measures that transport people of all abilities around our system, including our paratransit network. And the importance of that is we have an aging population. We have a a younger population. It's not just, um, you know, people who are in wheelchairs. So it has been a significant challenge. The MTA has certainly tried to address that. It's very, very costly, but I would love to see continued and expanded progress on that front. We've seen progress, but I'd love to see that progress expanded in the short term. And just on the way out, tell folks what you're doing next. I am joining the Delaware Transit Corporation as its first ever chief innovation officer. So working with the State Department of Transportation um, and, again, the transit company. I'm very excited to be in a new role, to um, be in a in a work environment that is very different, new opportunities, so I'll be moving to Delaware soon. Okay. Well, we wish you the best of luck. Thank and you. New York will miss your voice. Thank you very much to you both. Thanks for your time. Bye. Bye.